Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, I spoke with Oliver Morton, who is the briefings editor at The Economist and author of perhaps the best book on solar geoengineering today, uh, The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. And I think it was one of our um, easiest conversations to prepare for. We've, we've known Oliver for many years. He's been on the geoengineering beat, I think, since I, well, since I started my PhD back in 2009, when he was preparing to write his book. Yeah, in the, in the discussion, you know, we talk a little bit about what, what does an editor do at The Economist, which is interesting. But also, you know, we get into geoengineering and, and, and the motivation for considering it. The fact that climate change is important and we should do something about it. And the fact that it's going to be really hard to cut emissions. That context hasn't changed, as, as we discussed, despite rapid changes in many areas, and um, still motivates the fact we should start thinking about ideas like geoengineering, radical ways to intervene in the climate system. And yeah, we talk about geoengineering a little, but also some of the other ways in which we've intervened in the natural system. And I had the opportunity to highlight to Oliver two ways in which he has changed my thinking about what he calls carbon geoengineering, which we typically call CDR for carbon dioxide removal, and solar geoengineering. And I think that these analogies, historical precedents, and speculative scenarios that he provides in his book and elsewhere have helped shape my thinking and perhaps those of others who are considering how innovative technologies, novel technologies, if you will, may have a role in managing climate change risks. Yeah. And I think what's interesting in his book, and we touch on this in the conversation, is this type of question, the should we intervene in the natural system? Should we do something? Has come up before. And he gives this really interesting example of the nitrogen cycle leading to the chemists who developed the Haber-Bosch process. They set out to change the world and to intervene in the natural world, and then did it. So I think that's a really interesting analogy, and he really brings it out in his book, and we discuss it in this conversation. And um, it's a fun conversation, and uh, we really enjoyed recording it. And now, Oliver Morton of The Economist. Oliver Morton is The Economist's briefing editor. Before coming to The Economist as Energy and Environment Editor in 2009, he was at Nature, the International Scientific Journal. He specializes in energy, climate science and policy, and other green issues. He is the author of, as far as I can find, four books, most relevantly to our topic, The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World, from 2015, and most recently, The Moon, A History for the Future. Welcome to Challenging Climate, Oliver. Ah, it's a great pleasure to be here, Jesse. So let's begin a little bit with your background and help uh, listeners understand. How did you go from wherever you started your, let's say, teenage years to ending up as briefings editor at The Economist? Gosh, I became a journalist while I was still at school because I, I was at school in Brussels, Belgium as opposed to any of the other Brussels you may know of. And while I was there, I wrote music reviews for the local English language news magazine, the Brussels Bulletin, which continues to have a, a lively presence online, though it's no longer a physical thing. And so I realised at that point that I quite liked writing and being paid for it. At university, I did natural sciences, um, which allowed me to do a whole bunch of different scientific things and also history and philosophy of science, which was a big influence on me. And having done an internship at The Economist at university, I came straight out and bounced very, very fortunately into a job at The Economist, worked here for eight years or so, then went off and worked at WAD, then freelance, then worked at Nature, and then came back. And along the way, an interest in planets in general, sort of like childhood science fiction reader, I found planets interesting. And my first book was about Mars, and I realized that there was something about the planetary scale of thought that appealed to me. And so in my own sort of like book writing, as opposed to sort of like magazine work, which is my bread and butter, it's been mostly about big spherical objects and the meanings that people want to impute to them. 
Can you tell me a little bit about your job at The Economist, briefings editor? I assume that this focuses in on those uh, features, the cover story and the collection of, uh, you know, four or five news articles and an editorial therein. What, what, what do you do? <laughs> uh, what we call the briefings at The Economist are three or four page articles, normally the longest article in the paper, which normally stand behind the cover or one of the covers. Although The Economist is the same material in uh, every region of the world, sometimes one region will have one cover and another region will have another cover. So for instance, this week, America has the Gulf and its economy on the cover, and Europe has the Italian elections on the cover. But the material inside the magazine is the same. So I edit one long piece a week on pretty much anything that the uh, editor wants to have run in that slot this week. So I edit things on absolutely every subject under the sun. But I also... We have an excellent environment editor, Katrin Brahik, but I also keep an interest in the in the climate change coverage, some of the energy transition coverage. I edit some of the technology stuff about the energy transition. Uh, I also sometimes edit, edit essays. We had a lovely essay recently by my friend and colleague Charlotte Howard about how the energy transition and the climate and climate change are between them happening in Alaska. So I keep busy. Yes, come back to your books briefly. Well, one thing that I think is quite interesting about them is that the style is maybe a little unusual in that you have a very detailed understanding or you take the reader on a very detailed tour of the science, but you also bring in some of the philosophical elements and poetic elements. How do you go about writing these books? There are quite a variety of things covered. It's very hard. I've never written, having not written any other books, it's it's slightly hard to say. I think that it's, I don't want to write books that are, as it were, just about the science. I, I think that's true of many of my colleagues um, who write mainly about scientific topics. I don't want to write a book in which you can say that, that the politics and the aesthetics are beyond the scope of this. And if you take the first book, uh, Mapping Mars, what attracted me to that to begin with was the realisation that the maps of Mars that we had back then in the late 1990s were hand-painted by artisans at the United States Geological Survey. And that mixture between the highest of tech, space probes, and hand-drawn map was a wonderful insight for me. And similarly, Mars is the place where imaginings about what a world might be and physical facts about what a planet is play together most richly. And so I enjoyed writing that book more than other people enjoyed buying it, um, uh, to judge by the evidence. Um, but uh, that's really sort of like set the pace. So for instance, when I came to write about geoengineering, at one point, I thought I'd write a short book about geoengineering. I still think I might at some point write a short book about geoengineering, but actually working on it, I realized that trying to write about sulfate aerosols and such things without putting it in a broader context of how humankind interacts with the earth was just not telling the full story. Now, I mean, and there are some people I know, some of them friends of mine who feel that this just goes all over the place, but it's, it's the way that I have of doing it. And no one's stopped me from doing it quite yet. And I mean, I think your book was very well received by the geoengineering community. Um, I heard even those who are very skeptical of geoengineering also really liked it. And those who are quite keen on geoengineering or, or seeing the possibility were also keen. So it was, a, I think it was quite a uniting book for the field. I, there are many things that I like about that book. But one thing I like about it was that it was the ETC Group's um, book of the year when it came out. The ETC Group, or I think they call themselves the Etc. Group, being a Canadian group that, uh, Canadian and multinational group that's activists were very, very skeptical about both solar and carbon geoengineering, among other things. So that I was genuinely pleased that they gave me a very thoughtful write-up saying, you know, this is the right way to be thinking about it. We think he reaches the wrong conclusion. Can't say fairer than that. The other thing is occasionally I have the pleasure of meeting young people who say that they read it and it sparked their interest and they're now doing research in the area. And that's immensely gratifying. When I was writing it, I met this undergraduate called Irvin at the University of Bristol. Uh, he seemed like a bright kid, but I know no idea what happened to him. Hmm. Well, that'll be a mystery. Yeah, so you, you launched that book, Planet Remade, with two questions. I believe they're from Professor Rob Sokolow, initially posed these, but um, let me pose them to you. Do you believe the risks of climate change merit serious action aimed at lessening them? That's question one. And question two, do you think that reducing an industrial economy's carbon dioxide emissions to near zero is very hard? Well, I'm a classic yes, yes on that. And yeah, I, I, I heard Rob Sokolow ask that question at a meeting on carbon dioxide removal back whenever, what, 2012 or something. And it struck me as a really good way of looking at it, because I think there are an awful lot of people who are yes, no, or no, yes on that. 
um, and the certain amount of ideological sorting that by and large, and certainly at that time, it's probably changed a bit since, there were a lot of people who said, yes, climate change was really important, but that getting away from a carbon dioxide based economy was relatively easy. That would involve sort of like large efforts of industrial policy, uh, et cetera, but nothing sort of like uh, systems changing. And I think to some extent that was because at that time, and it's hard to remember this, people were really talking about reducing, not eliminating carbon dioxide emissions in most of the sort of like policy literature, in, in most of the sort of policy thinking. People are talking about cuts of X percent by Y year rather than net zero by Y year. So they tended to, th- to underestimate the difficulties of industrial change, whereas there were people in the climate delay, climate denial sort of world who, as I understood it, had a very re- realistic view, possibly because they had vested interests um, embedded in it, of quite how difficult it would be to give up fossil fuels. And they were motivated to think the other way. They were motivated to think, and thus it's probably not something we really need to do. And the interesting thing for me about the way Rob framed that question was that if you're in the yes, yes camp, which I think many more of us are now, that doesn't necessarily push you in one or another policy direction because, you know, you could be a really savage, degrowth, deep green person and be in the yes, yes camp. Or you could be a completely Promethean geoengineer, the shit out of this problem in guy, and still be in the in the yes yes camp. So it was interesting to me that it excluded people who I think have a certain sort of like ideological motivated reasoning. It didn't actually include people. It, it didn't have the same sort of like group thinkiness of itself. I think that's a really important way to look at it. Well, the book came out in 2015, so you must have finished writing it a little before that. Yeah, days before. Days before that. <laughs> well, well. so in any case, uh, emissions of CO2 have, have risen, not as fast, but have risen since then, and look like they're kind of plateauing, maybe. We'll see. But other things have changed too. I mean, we've seen the price of solar power and wind continue collapsing at a rapid rate. And then we've had a, a number of other things happen quite recently. We've had the pandemic, had the, the, Ukraine, the ongoing Ukraine war and the, the shock of the gas prices. How much has your sense of how much we're going to emit, how hard this is going to be, how much has that changed in the past few years um, with these crises and developments? Yes, 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 it's still the way to bet. I mean, I think there are two ways of looking at the renewables issue. It has been quite remarkable. I mean, I think people still don't fully understand in the world at large quite how remarkable the drop in price of solar panels and then to a lesser extent wind turbines and now batteries, quite how extraordinary it is. But when I, I was at a, recently at a meeting where we were discussing 1.5 and 2 degree targets, and looking back, I'm finding it very hard to think how we thought about getting anywhere at all before those price drops. And really, the only option that I'm not saying it's not an option now was nuclear, which everyone really knew was not going to sort of like suddenly be doing 10 times as much business as it had been doing hitherto. So to some extent, The fact that it still looks really difficult to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions from society, despite the fact that we now have very, very cheap ways of making electricity, it's for some of the time, almost like underlines it, right? The fact that it still looks like a hard problem, even when you've done something which I would have thought almost impossible, the degree of progress has been in renewables, that makes it still look like a hard problem. And just on the um, Ukraine and the pandemic, Have these materially changed the outlook, do you think, for the future? Well, materially. I mean, yes, they've changed the outlook. The pandemic, I think, not really so much. But Ukraine has had the problem that it's going to mean that there's a lot less money for Europeans and others to spend on climate action. And it has had this slightly, I mean, it's entirely reasonable given what the existing system is like, that everyone has fixated on the gas price. So a lot of people have fixated on the natural gas price. But I think that the key point here is that gas is dangerous. The gas is volatile. And in an increasingly difficult world, it may become more volatile. So there's a rush in and you can quite understand it because of the contingencies of today towards building in an LNG infrastructure in Europe and things like that. And I'd be stupid to say people shouldn't do that. But at the same time, I do worry that we're going to be left with a lot of new natural gas hardware, which might lead us to make some quite poor decisions later on. For prompt electricity use when it's available, that nothing is going to beat renewables from here on in. Whether natural gas infrastructure converted to hydrogen infrastructure in some way is going to be a major part of how we store and trade energy, 
I think the the jury is still out on that. But I do worry that we've sort of like taken something which has shown quite how unstable and dangerous fossil fuels are, and for very understandable reasons, end up with a response which builds fossil fuels a bit more deeply into the structure of what's going on. The subject of the planet remade is geoengineering. And in that, as you mentioned, you include carbon geoengineering or large-scale carbon dioxide removal and solar geoengineering or solar radiation modification. And when I first came to the subjects in the early 2000s, I, like many others, thought these are fundamentally qualitatively new proposals for something for humanity to undertake, to manage the earth intentionally. And then I came across your writing on the nitrogen cycle, first in a book chapter, in an obscure book chapter, but it's also mentioned, I believe, in The Planet Remade. And that catalyzed some rethinking in my mind about at least a continuum of intentional, large-scale human interventions in Earth systems. Can you tell us a little bit about what humans have done with the nitrogen cycle and where that, where we are now in that intervention? It's lovely to hear that it struck you that way. It struck me that way while I was working on it as well. In the late 19th century, a new idea, there's a lot of worry in the late 19th century, so like fantasy air worry. People have started worrying um, in a sort of like not quite neo-Malthusian way about running out of things. William Jevons in Britain is worried about running out of coal. And people start worrying about running out of nitrogen or specifically fixed nitrogen. As I think people are well aware, most of the atmosphere is nitrogen, but that's dinitrogen, N2. And it's an incredibly inert gas. That's why it's able to fill up most of the atmosphere. To actually turn nitrogen into things that make up your nerve cells or your muscle cells, that makes protein, all protein contains uh, nitrogen, you need to fix that nitrogen which is weird. It's a term that comes from alchemy, but it's something that microbes do to turn nitrogen into nitrates and ammonia. And the capacity of the earth to do that depends on its bacteria. And in the late 19th century, various people, notably William Crookes in England, pointed out that we were taking nitrogen out of the world through the agricultural system at a rate that it was not being replaced. And so the world was increasingly dependent on mineral nitrates, which mostly came from South America. And that mattered partly because of food, partly because there was a feeling, and there was, as in everything at this time, a certain racism, that there was a feeling that the food that white people needed, which was wheat, needed nitrogen more than rice did. And so there were dangers to the Anglo-Saxon races in this. But also, crucially, in the late 19th century, the demand for nitrogen, for fixed nitrogen, for armaments is getting really, really high. And so Germany is very aware that if there's a war, it's going to have to try and get nitrates from South America, despite the fact that the Royal Navy is the most powerful uh, military force on the planet. And so for these reasons, the idea, this call goes out from Crooks particularly, saying it's the duty of chemists to learn a way to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And various ways are put forward. And the Harbour-Bosch process in Germany becomes the one that almost all of the world uses. And that makes possible certainly the second half of the First World War and all of the Second World War. You just can't have that much ammunition if you don't have artificial sources of nitrates, of nitrogen compounds. At the same time, it also makes possible later, because this doesn't have much between war, the use of nitrate fertilizers, um, which allows the people who've been born as part of the demographic transition to go on eating and live. And it sort of like supports the population explosion, I don't think causes it, of the 1940s, 50s, 60s. And so you could see this as purely a sort of like a thing that happened technologically. But it's very striking to me that, you know, a small group of scientists set out to make this happen. They set out to provide the world with this capacity that it didn't have before. The thing they targeted was one of the basic biogeochemical cycles of the Earth. You know, there's the carbon cycle, there's the nitrogen cycle. They're the two biggest. There are other cycles as well. They deliberately set out to change that, to put a new route into it that hadn't been there before. And they massively succeeded in that now industrial nitrogen fixation outstrips any given part of the Earth system's nitrogen fixation and comes close to matching the whole thing. So humans have basically taken over a fundamental aspect of the way the Earth works. And that seems to me to have obvious messages for climate geoengineering. Another point is that this was deliberate policy. People wanted to achieve things with this. The Green Revolution of the 1960s in developing country agriculture 
It's called the Green Revolution, not just because plants is green, but also because it's deliberately being contrasted with a red revolution. The thought is that if America can make life easier for Asian peasants, then Asian peasants will be less likely to become communists. And so similarly, at a slightly higher level, but with similar sort of background for their concerns, the Rockefeller Foundation, very powerful in its um, stewardship of scientific progress in the middle of the 20th century, is also doing this because it wants to change the world. It wants to look at a global problem of overpopulation, as it would see it, And it's playing one side of the street with population control measures. It's playing the other side of the street with agricultural productivity enhancement, which is the nitrogen revolution. So this isn't something that just happened. It's something that there was a real policy aimed at changing something fundamental about the way the world works. And so that's a very long answer to the question of why I think nitrogen really is worth thinking about if you're thinking about geoengineering. Not least because the other thing is the people who started it They did have a conscious idea about what was going to happen, but they had no idea of how much it was going to happen. You know, if Crooks had been asked how much nitrogen do you think the world will need to fix, maybe he'd have said 5 million tonnes a year if he was feeling expansive. You know, we're now up to something like 140 million tonnes a year. And we have a huge second order environmental problem of the amount of nitrogen waste that gets into water, the effect of uh, N2O, which is increased by the fact that there's more nitrogen fertilizer on global warming itself, because N2O is is another long lived greenhouse gas. If it was not for climate change, nitrogen would be the big unifying global environmental issue. I'm not sure how much you talk about it in the book, but the water cycle is another cycle. On the, or at least on, the, on land, we have an enormous uh, role in extracting, managing, redirecting water. Is there much we can learn there? Or That's a really interesting question, Pete, and I, I haven't thought about it as much. I've tended to think that because the water cycle is so dynamic, that possibly not. I mean, there are those work by Roger Pilker's dad, so Roger Pilker Sr., and other people pointing out that land use change, partly through its effect on local humidity, is a driver of local and regional climate change. I tend to think water issues tend to be regional, not global. I don't quite see how you'd go about wetting or drying the atmosphere on a global level, except, of course, through climate geoengineering, which, as you know far better than I, would change some aspects of hydrology worldwide. I mean, yes, humans have changed the courses of waterways. Well, the degree to which you know, there's a completely forgotten hydraulic history of the east coast of America from water mills that were made in the colonial and early early republic eras and are now just completely forgotten. And people dig up sediments and think, how did these sediments come in? And then they realize, yeah, this used to be a mill pond. I think it's a really interesting. I don't think there's a systematic global way of looking at it, but I really, I'd queue up to read the book that there is, the, the, the book that claimed there was. Getting onto the topic of your book, though, the, the core of it is uh, the, the geoengineering techniques, uh, carbon dioxide removal, so an intervention in the carbon cycle, and then solar geoengineering, an intervention in the energy budget of the planet. So I think our, our audience should be fairly familiar with these ideas because we've talked about them a few times in bits and pieces. But yeah, how have things moved on? You, you wrote the book back in 2015. And at that time, it was kind of just after the first wave, I'd say, of solar geoengineering research. You know, the Royal Site Report came out in 2009. Some initial research had gone on. I'd started my PhD, et cetera. But um, how have those two strands of geoengineering developed since then, since the book? I think the two strands have gone in quite different directions. And I think they will be reunited to some extent later on, but at the moment in two different directions, because Paris, which happened after my book came out, really made for various reasons, made carbon dioxide um, reduction, negative emissions, an absolutely core part of all serious talk about climate change. Because by including even a sort of stretch goal towards 1.5, all the models of how emissions and climate interact suggest that in order to keep the climate well below, in Paris terms, two degrees above the pre-industrial, you have to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And, you know, that was absolutely not something on the agenda at the times of Kyoto or even really at the time of Copenhagen. But this is now completely normalized. And there's been a lot of I mean, and now there are companies which are like carbon engineering and Climeworks, which are offering to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for specific purposes. There's a new set of interests in what are called nature based solutions. There were people like David Beerling at Sheffield working on enhanced weathering. So there's a lot of interest now in uh, negative emissions, but not, I think, an interest that is anywhere up to the scale needed, given the importance that they now play in views of becoming carbon neutral by 2050 or 2070 or whenever. 
So it's been good for carbon engineering in the sense of raising its profile, though it's also raised a whole lot of expectations of it that as yet, I don't think it's really close to meeting. Solar geoengineering, I thought after Paris that now that there were temperature goals built into international treaty obligations, which there weren't until then, there was no treaty, there was no temperature goal in a binding resolution of the UNFCCC until Paris. The fact that there were now those goals, I thought meant people would say, well, these are temperature goals and we should look at other technologies for changing the temperature. And I was wrong about that. So solar geoengineering has moved towards the realm of policy discussion and is continuing to do so, and I think will continue to do so. But it's still not in any way a sort of like a mainstream topic. You see, I mean, it's systematically, and not I'm not saying deliberately, but it's because of the way the IPCC does its work. It's systematically, I think, underplayed in IPCC reports because it doesn't fit into the scenarios that they're using. And I'm sure some of them like it like that. And I know some of them wish that they could do more, but that's the way the game is played. So there's, as you know, because it's been the, the foundation of your excellent career, there's been more academic work on it. There is now uh, a solar geoengineering program at a major university. There are people who have tenured positions who did solar geoengineering work as their PhD work. So in terms of institution building within science, it's moving forward, but it's a drop in the ocean compared to where I think if you read something like the National Academy of Sciences report last year, Reflecting Sunlight, they're talking about an effort to understand solar geoengineering that is at least an order of magnitude beyond what we're currently seeing. I guess one one of the big differences between the two broad approaches is there's a lot of money to be spent and, and hence made capturing carbon from the atmosphere, whereas for solar geoengineering, there, there isn't. I mean, there are some planes to be built for stratospheric aerosol geoengineering and so on, but it's a relatively small component. Does the sort of lack of a financial interest, the lack of an industrial interest, does that make a big change? Is, is that responsible partly for this? Or do you think it is just the readiness of policy to consider? It's really the fact that this is oversimplistic, but it's the fact that you can put negative emissions into the sort of models by which one analyzes future climate policy simply by changing the sign. That's why they're called negative emissions. And so when you need to make these frameworks look as though the policy goals are achievable, that's how you do it. And also, although, in fact, there are very strong reasons why one might be sceptical, as indeed our friends at the Etc. Group are, about large-scale bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, for example, which would be one way of doing negative emissions, which would be growing plantations of bioenergy crops, burning them in power stations and capturing the carbon from those power stations. That's a very big land use commitment. You know, these are land use commitments on the size of large countries like India and Argentina. But that tends to be ignored on the basis that not emitting carbon and then taking carbon away, they seem like they have a sort of like kindergarten economics um, appeal that you made a mess, so you should clean up your mess. And that sounded slightly more mocking. It's not mocking. I think that's a good principle in kindergarten and, and in planetary management. However, it does like normalize this vast technological undertaking in a way that I think is slightly unhelpful. And particularly, I think I was beginning to realize this when I wrote The Planet Remade, but I realized it much more clearly later on. People talk a lot, uh, and I think you have indeed on, on this podcast, talk about a lot about what is sometimes called the moral hazard argument about geoengineering, that if people know that there's a way to geoengineer yourself out of the problem, they will do less to cut emissions. And I think that's a real issue in some structural ways. It's the issue I worry about most with geoengineering. At the same time, we are actually seeing that with carbon geoengineering. We are actually seeing a process by which the world is relaxing, not its actual emissions trajectory, but what it thinks about emissions, because it thinks it can make up for them elsewhere later in a different way. And every specific ton of carbon dioxide can be treated as one that could be added to the number to be taken away later. So there's an absolutely smooth transition between emissions and negative emissions that really does facilitate moral hazard. To some extent, the weird, scary spaceship earthiness of solar geoengineering, when you change the reflectivity of the planet, the fact that it's so different actually means the moral hazard is to some extent less pronounced. And it might even, as I think you've pointed out, Pete, it might even be negative. There's some evidence to suggest that if you start talking seriously about solar geoengineering, people will say, holy shit, you're really thinking about doing that? I hadn't taken on board quite what an issue this was. We have to get more serious about it. 
No one's saying that because of carbon geoengineering. So I think that's interesting that the moral hazard problem for carbon geoengineering is, if anything, worse than the problem for solar geoengineering. So carbon geoengineering has taken a pretty big turn over the last decade or so, moved much closer to the mainstream of international and domestic climate change policy. Substantial amounts of money are being spent on research and development and small-scale projects. But let's talk a bit about the current status and future of solar geoengineering. It hasn't taken any dramatic turns in increase in scale of activities in the last decade. A modest uptick, I think, might be a fair characterization. As you said, there's uh, one research project at a major university. Research funding has slightly increased, but it's still a fraction of 1% of global climate change spending. Let's talk first about the short term and speculate. Let's do some informed speculation. Where might solar geoengineering research go in, let's say, the next five, maybe 10 years, as well as where might the political discourse go? Well, I think coming back to the National Academy's report of last year, Reflecting Sunlight, they imagined a program ramping up into the sort of like, I think the number they give is $200 million over five years. I don't think that's necessarily what they get. But when we say mild uptick, I think there have been qualitative changes as well as quantitative changes. There are now at least a few NGOs actively involved in this area. I'm a trustee of one of them, the Degrees Initiative. There are others, um, Silver Lining, for example, in America. Those weren't there 10 years ago, five years ago. They do think, I mean, the one that I'm involved in, Degrees, works to build up the research capacity for understanding and interpreting solar geoengineering in developing countries. I consider it absolutely vital work. That was there in an embryonic form. It's now an independent, moderately well-funded entity that's doing its own stuff. So that's a qualitative difference. Similarly, there is now language in American legislation um, referring directly to things about solar and carbon geoengineering, but solar is what we're talking about here. That's something that there wasn't before. There, the existence of something like C2G, the, the, the Carnegie Initiative, has which works on solar geoengineering governance, really did move the discussion slightly, but really, um, towards the mainstream. And the Climate Overshoot Commission that's been convened by the Paris Peace Forum, which I, I know you're involved in, Jesse, is doing something similar again. So, so I don't think we should do this purely on the basis of, say, a citation analysis of what papers are being published. There is something going on beneath or beyond that. I think that what I would still like to see probably more than anything else is having been aware of work on marine cloud brightening for well over a decade now. I would really like to see some of the brilliantly clever designs for how to make nozzles that produce trillions and trillions of tiny particles um, on a regular basis done by wonderful people like Armand Neukermann and others. I would love to see that actually. I would love to know whether you can actually brighten a marine cloud routinely through the use of this. It's something that we simply don't know. And it looks like you should be able to, but you know, can you actually do that? That seems to me an entirely reasonable question. And also a question that is much less scary to people than even the question of putting small amounts of stuff into the stratosphere, because people can sense that you know, clouds are, by their very nature, you know, transitory. So you don't always know it under the fog banks of San Francisco, but they are transitory. And so brightening a cloud just doesn't feel with seawater just doesn't feel like a bad thing to do. They also have regional effects that might be interesting. I mean, I recently had the great privilege of spending a month in the Santa Cruz Mountains and seeing the coastal fog layer coming in and helping the redwoods every day. I think that knowing how to manipulate coastal fog so it keeps doing that, even if left to itself, it wouldn't. That's something that people might be interested in. So I would love to see actual real field research on marine cloud brightening. I would also really like to see some research on stratospheric processes in the stratosphere, because I think people don't appreciate how strange and unusual the stratosphere is. And you can't just make us all like a box at ground level that acts like the stratosphere, because boxes have edges. Stuff gets absorbed in the edges. And to, to really do something in something that, that works like the stratosphere, I think you have to do it in the stratosphere. And these could be very small scale 
experiments. Like I'm sure you've talked before on the program about Scopex, which is the um, long, long, long projected, anticipated, delayed, rethought um, experiment that the Harvard group is working on, Frank Koich's group. And that's a tiny, tiny beginning. I think that you really do need to do some of that. And you also need to start thinking about some of the sort of like systematic things you might want to do if you were going to do a a more ambitious research project in terms of real understanding of some of the climate, of some of the chemical process in the stratosphere on a global scale that that at the moment we really don't know. In some ways, uh, I'm sure that there's great modeling studies on solar geoengineering still to be done. I'm sure that Pete is working on them at this very moment. At the same time, I think to some extent, it's actually our knowledge of the stratosphere at the moment that might be the thing that you want to worry about most, because it's harder to actually really find out how the stratosphere works, to find out what strange mixtures of the physical effects of warming and the chemical effects. I think that that's something that if we were being serious, and that's really what I want, I want people to be serious about solar geoengineering, not seriously committed to it, but they're serious. We should be finding out more about how the stratosphere works. Marine cloud brightening is one where I, I think it gets a little bit of a pass because, you know, fluffy clouds, making them fluffier seems fairly, you know, benign. This is marine cloud brightening, not marine cloud fluffing. You're right. <laughs> the fluffiness is, it, it's pretty much the same either way. In any case, um, one of the issues I think it raises that I don't think has really been discussed very much, and I think this applies even at the field test uh, scale, is what do you do with the weather forecast? You're making a weather forecast that's accurate circa 10 days, seven days out, and you've got a proposed experiment. You can then make two foot weather forecasts, one with and one without the intervention, the experiment. And if it produces a change in the weather forecast, what do you do? And similarly, you know, this would apply every time you're running the marine cloud brightening deployment is you've got weather forecasts with, without, or with certain variations of the deployment. Unlike stratospheric aerosol engineering, marine cloud brightening you have the choice, I think unavoidably, to be intervening in the in the weather. How do you think about that? Well, I must say, to start off with, I was not talking about regional scale testing of this in anything like the near term. I was just saying that having been, since I think I first went to a meeting about that turned on the question of the nozzles you would need to make the particles, the bright and the clouds, 13 years ago, but I'd really like to see how those nozzles work. So that's just the first order thing. I, before we say anything else about marine cloud brightening, real, working out whether you can really do it seems to me to be a really important question. I'm less worried about questions. I mean, the questions you bring up are interesting. They're not particularly worrying to me in that, A, this is an intervention that is intentionally meant to be in a very stable part of the weather system, right? The idea is to brighten these long, uninterrupted decks of low cloud over the seas. And to do that by making the clouds slightly brighter and the particles in the clouds slightly longer lived. And I don't think that you really affect any of the big dynamics that moving whole weather systems by doing that. Uh, you might do, but you know, I don't think you do. I don't think there's any mesoscale modeling that suggests you do, but I could be wrong about that. At the same time, we already live in a world where people do cloud manipulation. They do much, much less of it than some people think but they do more of it than most people are aware. So there are large-scale operations most winters to try and increase the snowpack on the Sierra on the west coast of America by increasing precipitation. I don't think anyone worries particularly about how that affects weather forecasts, but PG&E think that they might get, I don't know, 4% more precipitation in a given event because of this, and that's worth doing because winter snow is summer water and electricity. And so the fact that we have, and you know, there's, as is well known, there's a lot of activity along these lines in China. There's some much more speculative in the Gulf. I don't think that these things on that scale represent a problem. So I'm not particularly worried about people trying out marine cloud brightening. However, if they started putting together regional plans for marine cloud brightening, I would absolutely expect them to be looking at the sort of issues that you're talking about. And I do agree that to some extent, marine cloud brightening looks so beautifully benign. That maybe at some level it does get a pass. But when people talk about using marine cloud brightening to change the global energy balance, they, I feel, tend to gloss over the fact that you can only do that if you really brighten a lot in some places in order to brighten the whole planet on average. And that means that most of the cooling you're talking about 
is happening through the weather system, through the climate system, that sort of like, as it were, warmth and coolness are being redistributed. And that's exactly the sort of thing that in some ways you don't want to be doing, right? You don't want to be changing everyone's weather in order to change the global coolness. So I think well, at that level, I do think marine cloud brightening to some extent gets a pass, but we're a very long way from that. As I said, it's almost a sentimental thing, but it's also a bit beyond that. I would like to know whether you can do it. I think that really does make a difference to how you think about it. And I think actualizing things does kind of matter. Turning our attention to the longer term, one idea that you put forth in The Planet Remade was something that originated from the late, great Steve Rayner. And this is the, I think you call it the concert. And this, at the time, much thinking around the use of solar geoengineering well, was, well, of course, only a great power would be so bold as to attempt to modify the world's climate. And perhaps uh, you can briefly describe the concert idea and tell us a little bit about what your current thinking is about the likely long-term trajectory, in as much as you're willing to speculate, of solar geoengineering. The idea of the concert in the book is the idea, and it is it was far-fetched then, probably more far-fetched now, that a small group of climate vulnerable countries, particularly climate vulnerable countries, I don't ever name them as far as I remember, I didn't mean to, gets together to start doing stratospheric aerosol injection. That is to say, by flying planes up into the stratosphere and spraying out, I don't think I specify, but I assume sulfate aerosols of some sort. And don't let on that they're doing this for a little while and then say, we're doing this to offset anthropogenic climate change. Do you really want to stop us? Effectively daring people to stop us. And I suppose one of the things that I was echoing, I mean, this was an idea that Steve Rayner talked about brilliantly as sort of like global civil disobedience. I also thought about it in, to some extent, under the rubric of Vassilov Havel's term, the power of the powerless. You know, countries that can't do anything about emissions on any large scale could do something about this. And they could make a moral case, I think, for saying that your emissions are the same sort of moral case that's made currently in loss and damage negotiations at the UNFCCC, that your work, you, you are damaging our world. We are trying to do something about it. Are you really going to stop us? I don't think the idea of doing it secretly and then revealing it is particularly plausible. I didn't think it was particularly plausible then. I think it's probably less plausible now because all sorts of people have launched all sorts of satellites and I think just people would be aware of it. I don't, don't think you could really do it. But I think the idea that pressure for solar geoengineering might come from poor countries, not from rich ones, is one that you should definitely think about. The other thing that I like about that scenario is that it doesn't suggest, as I feel a bit too much of discussion about solar geoengineering does, that everyone gets together and thinks about what to do and then does it. And at the other end, one lunatic does it and everyone else stops them. I think there's an awful lot of space in the multilateral and minilateral and oligolateral worlds to do something like this or to talk about something like this. And I continue to think that all people talking about geoengineering governance need to think about geoengineering governance, how geoengineering governance responds to a fait accompli, rather than seeing it always as being always before the fact. It seems to me that the first solar geoengineering schemes that the world sees, if indeed we ever see any, are likely to be partial, quite possibly poorly thought through by a small number of players. And one of the reasons I think the rest of the world needs geoengineering research is so that it could deal with that. Because I was very influenced by someone who I know is a friend of all of us, Pablo Suarez, pointing out that you can't really understand the Argentinian invasion of the Falklands or, or in Argentina, the Malvinas, in terms of being sort of like a rational military strategy. That wasn't what it was about. It was about regime continuation. It was about symbolic. It was uh, it was a gamble. The first piece of solar geoengineering is much more likely to be like the Falklands invasion than it is going to be like D-Day. So reading your, your most recent book, The Moon, you, ha you had a section that, that made me sort of think a little more about this. I think you, you were, you're talking about how uh, the Soviet Union had made the, all these advances in space and shocked the US, and they were thinking of a response, and it was eventually they came up with going to the moon first. But you mentioned the fact they seriously considered doing a global desalination project, a sort of a globally beneficent project to show how amazing America was. If the US or China, one of their big powers, gets involved with solar geoengineering, 
do you imagine it being more likely to be a kind of global beneficent, you know, we're the world savior type strategy or uh, the global climate for the Chinese implemented in their narrow self-interest? Um, what's your what's your thought on that? Because it seems that the big players are the ones who are most likely to be able to carry this out. Will they be doing it with everyone's interest in hand or in some other way? Great question. I never really thought of it in quite those terms. I mean, the, the desalination was never sort of like a project. It was a thing that Kennedy said. And Kennedy was oddly fixated on the saltiness of things from other things that I've read, which is weird. But there you go. But to your question, some people might do it in a sort of like belligerent way. And, you know, certainly. I don't think it's sort of like on the Kremlin's agenda at all at the moment, but you can imagine something like that saying, sod off, we want the climate the way we want it. I think it's quite likely that a country that tries to do it and also maintain esteem within the company of nations would, of course, claim that it was doing it for the world. Whether a country actually would do it for the world, well, I, in, in a way, I think that the the concert idea we were just talking about, the idea in my book of the small nations doing it because no one else will and they really care, that would be sort of like a way of, of showing a united world and a united aim. There's a problem that you stick about global solar geoengineering. And to say that you're doing it for the whole world, it's very hard to do that without also sounding like you think that at some level, the whole world is yours to play with. It's a sort of like stratospheric imperialism. And, you know, I think people will make all sorts of claims, both about why they are doing it and about why other people are doing it, if it if it becomes done. And it will be very, very hard to distinguish them. Just as, you know, for instance, it's quite hard to sometimes distinguish climate action at the moment, whether is is this proposal for a border adjustment on the climate, on the carbon price, is that protectionism or is that good climate policy? Is this industrial policy just to keep other people's EVs out of my country? Or is this a policy that's meant to actually increase the global stock of EVs, by which I mean electric vehicles? It's very hard. I mean, I think wrong to think that any major policy initiative between nations or within a nation is monocausal. Um, everything is overdetermined when you get up to this sort of level. And I think one of the interesting things about as the discussion of geoengineering, certainly in the natural sciences community, is largely on the idea that there's only one set of interests involved and that the aim is to, in some ways, control or lessen or respond to the prompt and long-term effects of greenhouse gas growth. And in the real world, that's not the only way that people do things. I don't think that would be in a world where you did see this sort of process go on, then I I don't think that they would be driven purely by climatic uh, things. So you're quite right. International prestige might be a way to do it, or it might be something that you would be denied by doing it. So to go back to it, it is true that the Apollo program did make lots of people very impressed by what America could do. It also made lots of people, indeed in America, depressed about what America wasn't doing because it was doing this instead. So you get that incredible refrain that goes from then onwards, you know, so if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we X or Y or Z? So it cuts both ways. Great. Well, um, we usually end on a question of optimism, of hope. I mean, you, you in your writing, you, you take a long time scale, big picture, and you weave in some fairly dark possibilities with the lighter ones. So. How hopeful are you about the future? And um, if you are hopeful, what gives you hope? This is the point where, as a sort of like pretentious cop-out, this is the point where you quote Gramsci from the prison notebooks and pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. People who don't think that there's a better world in the future tend not to work hard to make the world better, is my impression. I'm not, by nature or by temperament, a particularly optimistic person, but I have to, when I'm sort of like think about this, and it's interesting because we've talked about a number of my books, this is the one that sort of like stayed with me. This is the one where I'm sort of like involved in a community around these questions because I think that it really matters. And I think that part of that is a commitment to the idea that there's better and worse and we can work towards better. I tend towards possibly too often towards the sin of despair, but I try to control it. I noticed just before we were talking, I noticed, and this isn't quite the tangent that it may appear, that it's the 25th anniversary of the, Shaw, of the Shawshank Redemption, a film that became much, much bigger than it was on its initial release because the idea of this film about hope spread and turned out to be incredibly powerful to people. And, you know, that's why now Lutini comes up sort of like lists of people's favourite ever films. And I think it's a, it, it's a lovely film. 
I think it's important to remember that its director, Frank Darabont, also adapted a different Stephen King story, The Mist, in a separate film that's been less successful, but which is a perfect companion piece to The Shawshank Redemption because it's a piece about giving up hope. And it's an, I won't say much more about it. It's, uh, it's not a film for everybody. It's an incredibly powerful film, and it's one of the most, for me, it was, one of the few works of art that has ever actually made me feel what I think ancient Greeks actually meant by catharsis. But it's about the sin of despair as opposed to the joy of hope. And I think, it, and I think that's something that we have to... It's so easy to despair. And sometimes I even find in myself that I'm doing it in a sort of like reflexive, slightly cynical, can't be bothered. You n- you never you, you're never going to look. I mean, despair is always going to look a little bit cooler than hope, isn't it? And I, I, everyone's still a sort of like status conscious teenager at some level. I fight against despair in, at, at all sorts of level, and I would recommend other people do so too. At the same time, you have to go back to the question you threw back at me at the beginning. Are the dangers real and severe? Yes, the dangers are real and severe. Is doing something about it really difficult? Yes, doing something about it is really difficult. You'd have to say on the odds that that sounds like the sort of thing where people end up losing. Optimism of the will. You know, it will be very bad if no one tries to make it better. I'll tell you that. Well, on that cheery note, our guest has been Oliver Morton, briefings editor at The Economist, author of several great books, including The Planet Remade and The Moon, A History for the Future. Thanks for being here, Ollie. Oh, it was a real pleasure talking to you both. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere, and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.